This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So this week, Randy and I are going to talk about the recent interpretation of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that has potentially led to funding being cut from hunter education and archery programs in schools. But before we get into that, we have a few updates. It's been a good last couple of weeks in the world of sheep scouting. We've found several groups of rams, including several that I'd be very happy with. So far, we've been out 21 days, probably pushing close to 200 miles and a ridiculous amount of elevation gain. In all of that time, I have seen mature rams four days, four days out of 21. Uh, and I'm pretty jacked about it. It's going to be a challenging sheep hunt, which is exactly what I wanted out of it. I even managed to get out one day fishing with Michael. We went and chased some walleyes. But for the full fishing report, we got to go check in with him. Hey guys, welcome back to the fishing corner. All things fishing here at Fresh Tracks. It's your boy Mike P. We're here. It's a beautiful day in Southwest Montana. Thinking about fishing. And I just kind of want to get you guys up to speed on what's been going on the past couple weeks. It's been a couple weeks since we've had a fishing corner. So Jason and I, we're actually going to show you guys some of this stuff because a lot of the fishing we've done recently has been filmed. Um, we did a little dry fly clinic on, what was that, two Thursdays ago. We headed to a beautiful river, Tailwater, in Montana. Did some dry fly stuff. Here's some clips of that. It was awesome. Jason even hooked into a fish awesome day following week marcus and i went out and did some walleye fishing and that it we, we accomplished our goal of catching some eater walleyes we did not accomplish our goal of catching a giant one but that doesn't always happen but besides that besides the work fishing been getting out myself and been doing some fishing in the creek it's been all right caught some fish on some hoppers which is really cool um, it's really starting to become that hopper season here in southwest Montana. Trout coming up, eating hoppers is always a fun way to fish. And then last Friday, my girlfriend Cassie and I, we went out on the boat, had another amazing dry fly day. Man, summers in Montana, just it's, it's awesome to get out on the river and spend some time with your friends. And next week, I'm going on a pronghorn hunt with Jay, so won't be doing too much fishing. Uh, but hey, it's hunting season and it's time to switch gears. Been shooting the bow a bunch, been getting ready for this archery pronghorn hunt. I'm excited to show it to you guys. You guys will see that in a couple weeks. So, hey, thank you, Marcus, for having me back on Fresh Tracks Weekly. Happy to be here. Uh, and we'll go back to him now. Thanks. All right, on to some news. In Montana, three women were attacked by a river otter while floating the Jefferson River. This came as a shock to many, as river otters usually appear relatively harmless being a small mammal. In fact, if you Google river otters, the first videos that pop up are just playful, cute otters playing nicely with humans. But they can weigh over 20 pounds, they have some serious teeth on them, and they are very capable of messing you up. One woman in particular on this attack sustained serious injuries to the face and was life-flighted via helicopter from the scene. Initial public response on social media was very critical, with people thinking that a river otter attack couldn't have been that severe. But once the individual released the photos, there was a lot less keyboard warriors. Her injuries were more similar to what you might imagine a grizzly bear attack looking like instead of an otter. All three women are now okay and recovering, but if you do go look up those images online, you'll likely have a much greater respect for what a river otter is capable of. In Vail, Colorado, there is finally some closure on the long-term dispute over a proposed housing development on Bighorn Sheep Winter Range. Vail Resorts plan to build affordable housing for their employees in East Vail. But significant public outcry followed as the site was located on critical Bighorn Sheep Winter Range. This led to years of argument between Vail Resorts and the town of Vail. 
Vail Resorts argued that they needed affordable housing for their employees, claiming that the town initially agreed to the building site, while the town of Vail sought to condemn the land from the resort because it served a public purpose and the area was critical to the bighorn sheep. They attempted to reach an agreement out of court, but after over a year of failing to do so, the decision was made in court. It all culminated in a recent trial where the judge issued a statement in favor of the town of Vail granting them immediate possession of the property. The town will pay $12 million to Vail Resorts to take possession and later a district court hearing will determine the full compensation that is owed. The whole deal sounded pretty messy, but for now, the land is conserved for Bighorn Sheep Winter Range. In Montana, the Alliance for the Wild Rockies recently won a court case against the Lewis and Clark National Forest over the effectiveness of closed roads and their impacts on grizzly bears. The Alliance for the Wild Rockies is a group that primarily sues federal agencies over logging and road building, usually within the name of protecting threatened or endangered species such as grizzly bears, lynx, and bull trout. The recent court case resulted in the judge ordering the Lewis and Clark National Forest to reconsult with the U.S. Fish Wildlife Service over the effectiveness of closed roads on forest land. The Alliance argues that the Forest Service closes these roads, but because of continued illegal use on the closed roads, it leads to a more severe impact on wildlife than what the Forest Service is reporting. The Alliance goes on to claim that the Forest Service ignores these violations and significantly underestimates the amount of actual road use and the impacts on grizzly bears from illegal road use and illegally shooting bears. On the other side, critics say the Alliance for Wild Rockies' claims are a stretch. And by continuing to sue the Forest Service, they stall any management on the land. This type of scenario is nothing new, where the Alliance for Wild Rockies and numerous other advocacy groups sue federal agencies to stop projects from happening. Another recent project was one to build a pipeline to pump oxygenated water from a pond to a nearby lake to help dwindling Arctic grayling populations. The water quality in the lake is extremely low in the winter, and a Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fisheries biologist said that the pipeline would probably reduce the risk of Arctic grayling going extinct but four advocacy groups sued to stop the project because the pipeline would go into a wilderness area, which violates the rules of the Wilderness Act. The judge ruled in favor of the groups halting the project. He also compared it to a previous project that they had stopped involving installing water tanks to benefit bighorn sheep, which were also not allowed to be installed. It mostly boils down to a difference in opinions on what should exist in a given area. In theory, a lot of these groups on both sides are trying to conserve wild places and wild things, but one side wanting zero human involvement whatsoever, with the other side wanting to manage the land to increase productivity for certain types of wildlife. The problem that often occurs when leaving lands untouched is that we've already altered the system so much that it leads to a very unproductive landscape, and we've put ourselves in a tight spot from years of fire suppression, which has built up fuel on the ground and decreased plant diversity. In many areas, the increase in trees, overgrazing, and long-term drought has depleted the available water on the landscape, making it less productive for many wildlife species. And then in the areas that have excess fuels, when fires do finally come through, they burn at a higher intensity than before, again, leaving a less productive landscape behind. Another scenario is invasive plants coming in that fewer wildlife species can utilize. Basically, we've messed up a lot of the landscapes, and leaving them alone will likely never return them to what they once were. And so what we're seeing now is this back and forth battle of how we should handle those areas. In Arizona, President Biden recently designated a new national monument on either side of the Grand Canyon National Park, totaling over a million acres. It's a significant chunk of land that overlaps with some of the most sought after mule deer and elk tags in the country. So national monuments generally maintain existing uses while prohibiting future development of mining and roads. So hunting remains the same as it was before the designation and the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service will also continue to be the land managers for the monument. 
One of the main concerns leading to this was brought up by local tribes and groups like Trout Unlimited was that of the uranium mining in the area and the potential contamination for drinking water in the Colorado River watershed. While there has already been a moratorium on new uranium mines over the last 20 years, this designation simply makes that prohibition of new mines permanent. Valid existing rights, however, will be protected, so existing claims and mines will remain in the area. The National Elk Refuge is seeking public comment to update their bison and elk management plan. If you're unaware, the National Elk Refuge is around 25,000 acres of land managed by the U.S. Fish Wildlife Service just south of Grand Teton National Park. Around 5,000 elk winter on the refuge every year, and for the last 111 years, the Fish Wildlife Service has provided supplementary feed via hay and pellets. So the supplementary feeding began and still exists primarily to reduce conflict with ranchers and to help elk stay alive during these harsh winters. But now, some argue that this feeding has now ingrained into the animals and they've created artificially high elk herds. Also, concern is growing over chronic wasting disease and the impact that that could have on these closely congregated elk. CWD has been detected in the area, which is one of the new factors listed by the Fish Wildlife Service of why they want to update the plan. In the last five years, the refuge did complete a step-down plan where they've slowly been reducing the amount of feed provided to the elk with hopes of reducing their dependency on the feed. There's a good documentary film on it called Feeding the Problem. I highly recommend checking it out. It's an older film, but it's still very applicable. I think it depicts the issue pretty well, in my opinion. But you have till August 31st if you want to comment on the future management of the area. With that, we are going to jump into the deeper dive where we're talking about the recent interpretation that has cut hunter education funding in schools. Just me and you for the deeper dive. Nobody wants to hop in on this one, I guess. I know. What's the deal? We, we've got a bunch <laughs> of frady cats in the office here or something. Every time we get out there on the ice a little bit thinner... Michael and Jace and everybody's like, oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, oh, we're going to, well. at least I, I don't know about you, but on uh, social media and various news outlets have been seen a lot in the last week about the yeah. hunter education funding being cut and archery classes being cut. Right. Um, and I feel like there's some confusion about what exactly happened because yeah. it, it all stems from something that actually happened last summer. Right. Yeah, it's the Department of Education right. has made an interpretation based on a bipartisan bill. I'm, I'm looking at it here. It's called the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Uh, it was a bill that passed last year. Right. A lot of support on all sides of the aisle, a lot in the, the uh, I guess you'd call it, industry of the firearms and, and other world had mm -hmm. some input on this bill and eventually said, yeah, okay, we, we've got what we think is, is good. Uh, so it it seemed like at the time a very innocuous, like sterile thing. Like, okay, great, whatever. Right. But and, recently yeah. it was the Department of Education. Right had interpreted it as it was mostly from what I understand it's like the wording that said training someone in the use of a dangerous weapon yeah and how they interpreted that yeah. was that hunter ed and ar these archery classes were included in that right because they're training people in the use of a quote-unquote dangerous weapon right that's their interpretation but that's yeah it's super interesting because like how do you draw the line I mean, that, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what's that's what's frustrating, I guess, is right. it's all subject to interpretation. Exactly. And how you interpret what a dangerous weapon is, is, and yeah. like, I feel like there's intent involved too. Right. So like, what is your intent with said weapon? Yeah. Like, 
in a culinary class, if you have a knife, <laughs> I mean, it kind of depends yeah. on what your intent is, right? If you're cutting an onion. Exactly. Yeah. And so, or you're driving a car. A car is also a dangerous weapon right. in, in the right context. Right. Or in the wrong context, I guess I should right. say. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting because I, growing up in Montana, this seems like second nature. Right. And the, and I guess the confusing part too is, uh, what, like it's when it's associated with schools is when they're getting right. fired up. Exactly. But most of the hunter ed classes that I ever mm-hmm. took or am familiar with were held in schools. Right. And so this is another going to be another point of interpretation, I imagine. Right. Because a lot of times it was after hours, right. but it was still at the school. Yeah. And so it's like, can it still be at the school? But if there's no funding coming from, because that's like the big thing. It's funding, federal funding. Right going towards schools associated with this dangerous weapon training. Right. So that's where it's a sticking point. It's, yeah, there's a lot of sticking points. And when you open that envelope, it just becomes so much wider. Your mind can go to so many crazy places, right? Like you're talking about, okay, you're in the home ec class, and they're teaching you how to properly, you know, cut up something. Yeah. Okay. Or they teach you how to sharp a kitchen knife or something. Well, <laughs> I saw like... it when I was reading one of the articles. I noticed that there was some wording around knives, yeah. and it was, I think, anything less than two and a half inches. Yeah. So that's what I was like, okay, so culinary classes, are we going to have to limit it to two and a half inches or less? Like... Yeah. Well, think about out in your shop class. Yeah. Right? If, if you go to a shop class, and I, I suspect it's the same as when I took shop in high school. You know, there's a lot of tools and a lot of things out there that you can get hurt on. Oh, for sure. And the teachers would spend about the first week training you how to not cut your finger off or how to not do something foolish with one of those tools out there. And so when you start evaluating where this could go and why they only put the boundaries here and here, it's pretty hard for me. And okay, I'm biased, right? I I have a little bit of feeling that there's people in the Department of Education that really don't care for hunting or shooting. And so that's where they drew the boundaries. And some would say, oh, Nuber, you're just picking and choosing and you're making this up. I don't think I am. I it, it's it, it just doesn't make sense why they would put the boundaries just there. Especially when there's so much evidence that shows that a lot of this training makes people more responsible in the use of these items. You know, we, we have na- a National Archery in the School program right. in ASP. And that that is so popular in some places. It's crazy. Yeah, I went back last November to my little hometown, Big Falls, Minnesota, and we did a fundraiser for the, the new shooting team. Or the high school, a sanctioned, the Minnesota State High School League, We that school was one of very few that weren't sponsoring a team. It's like, okay, this is formalized through a state high school league. Right. I, I don't know how you can get any more formal than that. And you're going to say that these groups or these people or these schools, even if they go and raise their money outside, they can't be part of what? Yeah, that's going to be where it's going to be. Because if they, right now it seems like they're holding kind of strong and on the, the statement. And I know there's been some 
some people that have reached out, the mm-hmm. congressmen that have reached out about right about this. But yeah, it'll be. I mean, do you think that they're going to continue to hold strong on this? Or uh, do you think there'll be enough know. blowback? I don't. There, I don't, and I don't know because it's all interpretation, right? right. And there's been blowback, but here's the classic blowback we see in the hunting and shooting space. Everybody gets upset. Everybody rants and raves on social media. No one does anything. Yeah. It's like, oh, I got mad. Yeah. Okay. What got done? So, uh, you guys know me. I'm like, I'm picking up the phone. I'm calling some staffers in D.C. And, uh. So far, I've only seen one person in Congress who has pushed back on this in in a formal sense. Uh, And the politics of it are, I hate politics. I hate that politics play a role in this. But right now, the Department of Education is under the administration of a Democrat. So the best bet to get somebody to change that is other Democrats. Because if Republicans say, oh, we're upset with this, they'll just dig their heels in further. It's just the partisan, you know, every, everything is a political football right now. So the, I've just been telling people, you know what, you may think nobody cares. You may think no one's listening to you. Well, if all you do is go out on Facebook or out on some forum or some Reddit page and you complain about it, it's not like all these people, decision makers, are out there reading this stuff. You have to contact them. You have to be in touch with them. All the groups that you're a member of, be notifying them because if a lot of their membership says, hey, this is a big issue, they're going to make it a higher priority issue themselves and they're going to get a hold of those people in D.C. and put pressure on the Department of Education to change this interpretation. And it's... I, I, no one's going to convince me, and, and again, this just might be my true colors showing, I don't know, but no one's going to convince me that the administration, it, this is like a, a backdoor way to go after shooting and hunting. Gotcha. I, and some are, I know we're going to get flamed for me saying that, but I, I'm an equal opportunity supporter. I'm an equal opportunity abuser when it comes to this shit, and it drives me nuts. This, this has, really, what does this have to do with the Department of Education and their decisions on funding? Yeah. Uh, other than them saying, well, let's go find some places. Like, we're worried about kids getting archery classes. I, my, when I was in high school, we had archery as part of our PE class. Oh, yeah, we did too. And that was like what so many people... Yeah. We're most excited about. Yeah. Like when we got to shoot archery stuff, like we went outside and got to go, you know, shoot targets and yeah. we had these old crappy bows, but it was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> like it was a lot of fun and like you learned, you learned a lot. And I feel like that was pretty instrumental in just like mm-hmm. informing my archery hunting, you know, start, I guess. Right. Just like learning how to properly use a bow and, and just understanding how it works so yeah it's, it's, yeah. it's and so like it, it, when we have cabinet level people they're appointed they're not elected so it's not like you can recall the you know person running department of education so if we want to do something that's constructive and out on my hunt talk forum i've given the links 
contact your congressperson, contact your U.S. senator, and put pressure on them to change this because it can be changed. If enough senators said, you know, we don't really care for this interpretation, uh, maybe your Department of Education budget isn't going to be what you think it is unless you change this. Gotcha. That's how this stuff gets changed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, to, to his credit, okay, like I say, I'm equal opportunity abuser, equal opportunity supporter. So I'm, I'm not a fan of how the administration has done this. But to his credit, Senator Tester from Montana has written to the Department of Education and said, change this. This is stupid. This is completely contradictory to everything in Montana. Mm-hmm. Now, will he be joined by other people on his side of the aisle? Because those are the people who could really influence Sweet, yeah. the administration. And this, you, you see this at the, right here. We're talking about something at the federal level. We've previously on this and on other podcasts talked about how governors are now appointing people. So, again, appointees who are not elected, who are chiseling away at things that are really important to what we do. It's, it's frustrating, but we got to up our game, the other part of this. You know, the, you think about these groups that are putting pressure on governors or presidents or cabinet-level officials. They have people who 24 hours a day, or at least their full-time employment, is to do that. And what do we do as the hunting community? We just we get a few volunteers to show up and do our best. We are so far behind on our game of playing where this game is now being played. I don't know if hunters are ever going to pony up, open their wallets for that, and say, all right, let's fund some sort of groups or group that their job is to show up also yeah, and represent our interest on these things. Because right now we're getting our clock cleaned. (laughs) But if this concerns people... I really hope that they'll reach out to their congressperson or their senator. Uh, there, there's links. Uh, if you Google contact my senator, boom, the first thing that shows up is the ussenate.gov. You say what state you live in, and yeah. you email him or her. Yeah, pretty simple. Yeah. So one of the things I'm curious about, so if, this, if they hold strong and this doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, the interpretation is not changed. Right. So... What I'm curious about is where, because currently a lot of the funding comes from, for hunter education, comes right. from Pittman-Robertson dollars, federal right. federal money, yep. through excise taxes on hunting equipment, well, shooting equipment yep. primarily and hunting stuff. But so will they, will those funds still be able to be used? Or does it does have to be completely disconnected from a school? Like that's what I, I'm a little right. unclear but, on. What, like how significant is this going to be? Right. Like is it like just – if you disconnect from a school, then you can still use those federal funds, hopefully? That's, that's my understanding, okay. but then let's make it a little grayer. Your hunter education happened in your school after hours. Right. So there's an indirect benefit to that hunter ed class, being able to use the school facility and the AV system and everything else. And some of these, this whatever it's called again, bipartisan something, something act, the BSCA act, Mm -hmm. some of that money's going to that school. Gotcha. So can that school no longer 
be the place where Hunter Ed or National Archery in the School Program or I was talking about, you know, the sanctioned shooting leagues in a place like Minnesota. Yeah. Can those no longer be there? Is, yeah. is, is, is I don't know. That's, yeah, that's what I'm curious about. That, like, so, and, and then, like, the art, like you're saying, like, these school-sanctioned archery things, are those a, a thing of the past? Like, is it going to have to be a completely extracurricular out activity put on by a, a third party? Outside of the, yeah. yeah. And that's what, so I'd, I mean, it'd be great if this interpretation has changed, but I'm, mm-hmm. I, my mind is just going, like, if it's not, what like, what are the true impacts? And exactly. Just, like, I, trying I, to understand it. Right. I have no idea where those true, where they're going to say, okay, the line is out here or back here or whatever. I, I have no idea. But for us and what we do and what we advocate for, this has me pissed off to the highest degree. Yeah. And it just, you've seen in the last five years efforts to make hunter education and firearms training an elective class for high school students. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't have any problem. In fact, I'm like, cool. Yeah. You know, well, that trend has had some opposition. It's not like you're forcing every seventh grader to take Hunter Ed. It's if they want to, they they right. can take it as part of the school system. Yeah, and it seems like the like what is the harm in training someone how to do something? Because in today's day and age, if somebody has a desire to use a weapon for you know a bad a bad thing, they're trying to do right. something malicious. Like they're gonna figure out how to use it. There's right enough resources or they just they won't or they won't know how to use it properly and they'll just go still they'll still go use it right so it's like you just want to keep people in the dark completely like and not have any education on this whatsoever because like it's not i don't it just blows my mind to think that if you educate someone on how to handle a weapon safely that that's going to somehow increase the likelihood of them using it for yeah, you know, malicious, malicious intent or whatever. Yeah, but and I, I'll, the, to me, this is just a further trend of urban versus rural America, mm-hmm. and urban America saying rural America, tough shit. You're gonna live with it because these types of things, archery, shooting, hunting, are very much a part of culture in rural America. It's part of what people grow up doing. It's right. part of how they've acquire their food and i mean look at how much food gets acquired by people in montana through this but the urban part of this voice says well too bad for you guys we're we're not going to consider the the wider view of how far this this decision extends and so you guys just take your lumps and move along i ain't moving along (laughs) i'm going to be a pain in their ass to the end of time and, the, you know, the, there's some groups that are really helping us on this, the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. And those groups are umbrella groups for a lot of our critter groups and other groups that we fund. And they're the ones doing the heavy lifting right now on it. Gotcha. And uh, give them all, all the attaboys and support that I can to keep pushing this because I, I see nothing beneficial that comes of this. Other than someone can make a statement that say, look what we did. We, we got Department of Education to cut funding for something like this. We made a statement. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm not giving up. I, you know, the the other people in Congress that I've uh, reached out to their staff, I've not heard back from them. Gotcha. Uh, hopefully I do. I'm going to keep pushing and, and pounding. Yeah. And I hope other people do the same. Because it's, here's really how it works, right? And everyone says my voice isn't heard. If a staffer has five emails on the same topic, that gets passed along to the, the chief staff of that congressperson or that senator. And if there's 10 or 20, that chief of staff is coming out to the state. The next time they're in state, they're going to have a meeting with that group of people. And, yeah, a state like California takes an awful lot of those emails to get a senator's attention. A state like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas, the, the rural states, it only takes about four or five emails on that senator. Someone's reaching out to you. So don't feel the, that you're without voice. Don't feel that it doesn't make a difference. That defeatist, apathetic, kind of fatalistic approach is what the other side wants. They hope that's what we do. You know, they hope we just go and complain on Facebook and don't do anything that creates action. So, I need a blood pressure pill, Marcus. <laughs> well, no, that's a good call to action, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great if the inter- interpretation is changed, but. Yeah, we we, we'll we, we got to we'll get that change because if you think about how far out they can leverage this to all the examples you mentioned this has a lot of tentacles that would go a long ways to really messing things up, at least in rural states. Yeah, for sure. In, in places we live and where a lot of our audience lives. Gotcha. So, all right. Well, thanks for <laughs> educating us and giving us the down. And now I know why Michael and Jace didn't want in on this. They saw my blood pressure was up <laughs> this morning. They're like, "What? <laughs> we don't want in on that." Randy's going off the rails. But anyhow, thanks for bringing it up. I hope, yeah. our, I hope our audience takes action, and maybe in the video link we should put where yeah. you can contact your senator and your congressperson. I'll do that. So. All right. All right. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, thank you.